Heavenly Father, we ask that your compassion would come to us so that we may live for your glory here today. Oh, Lord, it is so wonderful to know that you are a God of great compassion. We pray that you would show that compassion to us even now as we look at your word. May it be a delight to us to see your love, your kindness, shown to your people through the centuries and even to us today. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, we've been working our way through the book of Samuel, which is found on page 265. If you've got a black church Bible there, and I encourage you to turn to it, page 265, we're up to 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4, and we'll be looking at God's work uh, amongst the Philistines and what happened uh, amongst the Israelites uh, today, and particularly their interaction with the Philistines. And this comes at a time in Israelite history where the people of Israel are in the promised land. So these are God's people who have been brought out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses, then brought into the promised land by Joshua, uh, Moses's aid, and then they've been living in the land through the period of the judges. And now in Samuel, we have the last judge, Samuel himself, and he will hand over the leadership of Israel to kings, particularly King Saul and then King David. And so we've been looking at Samuel, his birth, and then last week we saw the call of God coming to him that he began to be a prophet of God. But we've also been hearing about the wickedness that is present in Israel. Yes, there's God's signs of grace there, particularly with the little boy Samuel and his parents and particularly his mum Hannah. But we've also been seeing that the priestly family of Eli has been exceedingly wicked and that God has been planning to judge them for what they've been doing, particularly the way they've been treating God's sacrifices and engaging in sexual immorality. And so this week we're going to see that prophecy come to fulfillment. We see the Philistines are starting to cause a problem for the Israelites. The Philistines are another nation that was already in the land when the Israelites came up out of Egypt, and they have still been there. The Israelites haven't driven them out completely, and they are fighting with the Israelites as we pick up the narrative in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Open with me your Bibles to page 265, 1 Samuel chapter 4, and we'll read from verse 1, which... uh, winds up from chapter 3 with the fact that Samuel's word had come to all Israel. And then we continue in verse 1 of chapter 4, page 265. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. So the Israelites and the Philistines are fighting, and here we see that the Israelites are defeated, that they even uh, lose 4,000 of their soldiers. And so the Israelites are trying to work out what do we do to defeat this enemy, defeat these Philistines who are fighting against us. And we see that in verse 3, verse 3 of chapter 4. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. 
So the Israelites realize we need God's presence to go with us. And the best way to do that is to get the ark of God to go with us. This symbol of God's presence that was made under the leadership of Moses. Moses was instructed to make this ark of the covenant. And to remind you, I thought it might be helpful to go back to those instructions, which are given to us in Exodus chapter 25. Turn back with me to Exodus 25, which is found on page 78, where we can see the Ark of the Covenant first being described. Page 78, verse 10 of Exodus 25. So Moses is being instructed by the Lord. He's gone up onto Mount Sinai, and the Lord has given him the Ten Commandments, but he also gives him all these other regulations as to how the Lord's people are to behave Uh, the different laws, and how they are to approach God. And included in that is this instruction that is given about constructing the ark of God. Exodus 25, page 78, verse 10. Verse 10 of Exodus 25. So this is God speaking to Moses. He says, Have them, that's the Israelites, make a chest of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out. Make a gold molding around it. Cast four gold rings for it and fasten them to its four feet, with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the chest to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of this ark. They're not to be removed. Then put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. So that's the the law of God. And then in verse 17, make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and and a half wide. And make two cherubim, uh, angels, out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark and put in it in the ark the testimony which I will give you. There above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. So here we see that Moses has given these instructions and basically it's a wooden box uh, overlaid in gold, and it's got these cherubim, these uh, figurines, basically, on top, and their wings are spread out, and it is said that between the wings there, God's presence will dwell, and that is right over the top of the ark, which has the atonement cover there in the middle. And we know that God then gave instructions that when sacrifices were to be made, particular sacrifices, that blood would be sprinkled on that atonement cover, just there between the cherubim where God dwells. Once again, showing that for the atonement of sin, for the, uh, to be made right with God, blood had to be shed. To be in God's presence, you had to come with the shedding of blood because of our sin. And so turn back with me to 1 Samuel chapter 4, where they bring out this ark, which was made many years earlier. They've still got it, the Israelites, from when Moses received those instructions and then put them into practice. They've still got this ark, and they, they believe that if we bring this ark out, then God will go with us because his presence is there between the cherubim on top of the ark. And we see that they understand this in verse 4. 
verse 4 of 1 Samuel chapter 4, back to page 265. Page uh, 265, chapter 4, verse 4. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. So here, this understanding that God is there between those, those cherubim. And then we read, And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Remember Hophni and Phinehas? They're the guys that have been doing the wrong thing. And, have been, and Eli, their father, has been warned by a man of God and then warned by Samuel that they will die for their sins. But they are the ones that are bringing out, carrying with those poles that were mentioned in Exodus 25, carrying the Ark of God. And so what happens? Well, we continue, verse 5. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. We're in trouble. Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They're the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the desert. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So here we see the ark has come into the camp and it looks like that it's going to have the effect that they're desiring. The Israelites are all fired up for the battle now that they've got the ark there and the Philistines are afraid. Yet they're trying to be courageous nonetheless. They've heard what God did to the Egyptians many years ago and they're scared but they're going to try and fight the best that they're able. So what happens? Well, we see that the Israelites are defeated and Eli's family is ruined. Look with me at verse 10. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Then it continues, verse 12. That same day a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh, his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he arrived there was Eli, that's Hophni and Phinehas' father, sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching because his heart feared for the ark of God. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, What is the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli who was 98 years old and whose eyes were set so that he could not see. He told Eli, I've just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. Eli asked, what happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines and the army has suffered suffered heavy losses. Also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are are dead and the ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died, for he was an old man and heavy. He had led Israel 40 years. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but she was overcome by her labor pains. As she was dying, the women attending her said, Don't despair, you have given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, 
because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband, she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. So here we see the Israelites thought that by bringing the ark of the covenant into the camp they would win, but instead they were defeated. And Eli's family sees the fulfilment of the prophecy that was made against them for their sin. And so this morning I wanted to look at this passage, and particularly the fact that people still ask the same question that the Israelites asked back in verse 3. When they face enemies and they see the defeat that their enemies bring upon them, they ask the same question that the Israelites ask. What is that question in verse 3? Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today? Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today? If you've lived any length of time in this world, you will have already known that there are enemies in this world. There are people who are hostile towards you, and often they triumph over you. But there's other enemies, the enemies of pain and suffering. They often triumph over us. We try to fight back against them, whether it be the common flu, uh, the common cold, a flu that comes along, we fight it back. My mum loves to say, I'm not going to get it, I'm not going to get it, as she feels the symptoms coming on. She fights back, but it so often prevails nonetheless. And we take different medications and and get treatments. But these things, they can take over. They can defeat us. And then, of course, there is the threat of death that comes as well. Again and again, we see this enemy triumphing over people. No one's been able to defeat it thus far, except that we know from the Lord Jesus Christ that he defeated death, but even he died. And, of course, the hell and judgment that we are aware of, that God has warned the nations with, that there is a judgment to come, we see this and we ask, why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today? Why has the Lord brought defeat upon people that he has created? Now you may say, oh, not everyone believes in God and his control of all things, because of course there's an assumption there made by the Israelites that the Lord has brought the defeat. So when we have pain and when we have suffering, when our enemies triumph over us, when death comes... It is because of the Lord's hand. You say, oh, not everyone believes in God, and not everybody believes that God has control of all things. Not everybody asks this question, Joel. But the Bible tells us that everybody is aware that death is coming. Everybody is aware of God and the judgment that is to come. The trouble is they suppress the truth. They are aware from creation. Romans 1 tells us people are aware that there is a creator, that God is their creator, but they suppress the truth. They do not want to know their creator. They turn a blind eye to him again and again. So the Bible tells us that people do ask this question, but they then try and suppress it. But even their lives can show that they acknowledge that there is a God and that there is a judgment to come, that they have many enemies in their life. I was interested in this uh, last few weeks as someone's been uh, talking in the media. I mentioned last week about this footballer who's been speaking about uh, a Bible verse and who goes to hell. And there's all these people who are so upset about it. And a lot of them, from my understanding, are people who are atheists, who, don't, who say that they don't believe in God. They don't believe that there is a hell. And yet they're suddenly upset when they're told that people are going to hell. Why are they so upset if they don't believe there is a hell? The fact that they get angry and upset when hell is spoken of shows that deep down they do know that there is a God. They do know that there is a judgment to come and they do know that hell does exist for those who are rebels against God. We don't just need the Bible to tell us. We can see it in the lives of people around us. They know that God is triumphing over them, that God is allowing enemies 
to come and defeat them. And so everybody asks this question in one form or another. Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us? Why does the Lord allow such things into my life? Why is there a judgment to come? And they ask, what can we do about it? What can we do in the face of our enemies? What can we do particularly in the face of death and hell? What can we do? And then people often respond in a way that the Israelites did. I think that's why this passage is so helpful for us today as we look at it together. The word of God always has things for us to learn, even centuries after the things happened. What did the Israelites do? They tried to force the arm of God to save them. They tried to force God. They tried to manipulate God to save them. And that is what people do today as well. People try to manipulate God. Why? Because they're used to manipulating everybody else in their life to do what they want. Even from a young age, children learn to manipulate others to get what they want. We learn very quickly, if I say the certain things, I can manipulate others. If I learn to say kind things, people will do nice things for me. Please and thank you. Those little words, they can open little doors and I can manipulate mum and even beg and say pretty please with the cherry on top. If I can do those things, I can manipulate mum to give me what I want. Or I say mean things or I whinge and I complain. If I ring up the complaints line, I will get my way. We get used to manipulating others by the things that we say and even the things that we do. We do certain things to manipulate others. Some people are very good at turning on the tears to manipulate others. Some people are very good at resorting to physical violence to try and manipulate others. And then, of course, we love to manipulate others with money, either withholding money or giving money. We can get all kinds of things done for us if we just give over money. And so we learn to manipulate people all the time from a very young age. Even children, as I said before, do this. I give out gummy bears to children for different rewards. I do it at Scripture, and we do it here at church. Children will come up for any reason to get a gummy bear out of you. It's amazing what they'll say. I even had a child once say, it's Mother's Day. Shouldn't we get a gummy bear? I'm like, you're not my mother. Why should I give you a gummy bear? But the child thought it was a legitimate reason to receive a gummy bear from me. Come up with anything to manipulate someone to do what they want. And so it's not surprising that the same attitude carries over to God. I can manipulate others to get what I want. I can manipulate God to do what I want. And when we ask that question, how can I force God's saving presence into my life? Like the Israelites there. They wanted God's presence and they wanted him to have his saving presence there. What can I do to have his saving presence so that I will triumph over my enemies? And when you ask that question, religious leaders are often there to give you all kinds of things that you can do to manipulate God so that he will do what you want. They will encourage you to do all kinds of rituals. They've been coming up with them for centuries. Different things that you can do so that you can manipulate God so that he will save you and that his presence will be with you. What sort of things? Well, of course, saying certain things. We've learned that we can say certain things and we can get our way with other people, and so we think the same with God. And so religious leaders will often tell you about different prayers that you can say, different confessions that you can say. And the Lord's Prayer is a very common prayer that is often given. If you just say this, rattle it through again and again and again, you can manipulate God to do what you want. And it may be singing or even sharing the good news about Jesus, evangelism. If you just go around telling people the message, then you can manipulate God. This is sadly done by the cults often, the people who come around knocking on your door. Do they really care about you? Or are they just clocking up the hours so that they can manipulate God to put them in paradise one day? 
If you read their teachings, it's pretty clear that they have to knock on those doors. They have to do so many hours every month so that that God will be pleased with them, so that they will earn paradise. And then it's, of course, things that you can do, not just telling the gospel to the things that you say, but there's things that you do that religious leaders will come up with so that you can manipulate God. There's different things like baptism, celebrating the Lord's Supper, church attendance. If you come to church regularly enough, you can manipulate God. Reading your Bible or doing works, good works for others, particularly helping the poor. If you're a good person and help the poor around you, God will be pleased with you and he will put his presence in your life and then he will save you. If you do all these things, God will save you. So it's not a case of getting an ark from somewhere and bringing it out. We don't have that option today. But there's all kinds of rituals that you can do so that people think they can manipulate God into helping them and saving them. I mean, there are different things that people try and use. Uh, it's not necessarily an ark, but they can have symbols like crosses, pictures up in the home. They can even have copies of the scripture. They think if I've got a Bible in the home, God's presence will be here. I even had one friend at uni who used to always leave a copy of the Bible on the dashboard of his car. Why would he do that? He said, no one will break in and steal my car. Had a nice car. He was a bit worried about someone stealing it. And so how did he protect it? Put a Bible on the dashboard. Didn't put a fish on the back of the car, but he put a Bible on the dashboard so that if anyone thought about smashing his window and taking his car, God's presence was there. And so it would be saved, his car. People think this way. They can manipulate God by having certain things, certain objects, saying certain things or doing certain things. And it's interesting, like the Israelites cheered on the priests when they brought out the ark, others will cheer you on. I've said about religious leaders giving you these ideas, but other people in churches can cheer you on as well and say, oh, if you're doing this and if you've got that and if you say these things, God is with you. Yes, yes, he's mighty to save in your life. He is spiritually present with you. You're going to be okay. You will have defeat of your enemies because God is with you. And so some people raise a cry. They may not raise it like we see when the Israelites brought the ark of God into the camp where there's this trembling of the ground. Verse 5 of 1 Samuel 4 reads, When the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. haven't had any other Christians uh, doing that, uh, shouting so much that the ground shakes. Uh, but there will be people who will cheer you on and say, You're okay because of what you've done, because of what you've said, and because of what you have, you will be okay. But the Bible reminds us, in this passage particularly, but in other places, that people who go through the motions, people who do the rituals, who say the right things, who do the right things, who have the right things, they're often defeated by their enemies regardless. And that is what we see in 1 Samuel 4. They brought this ark in. They thought they were going to win. We have forced God to come with us. What happened? The Philistines wiped them out, killed their priests, and stole the ark that they were trusting in. And we see this happen again and again, not just in 1 Samuel chapter 4. We see people who are so meticulous in keeping God's laws, doing the right things, saying the right things, having the right things, and then they're condemned by God. And one clear passage on that is the passage that we had read for us before from Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus is condemning who? He's condemning the Pharisees, the religious leaders who were meticulous in keeping God's law. And he says, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, you hypocrites. And he calls them whitewashed tombs. Why whitewashed tombs? 
They're like a nice grave, but looks good on the outside, but inside is full of deadness and bones. Whitewashed tombs. They look good for keeping all the rituals, but inside they're full of deadness. And the Bible says this again and again about people who keep rituals as a way to force God's presence into their life. But they are condemned. And this will happen for many people around the world, even alive today. They keep all these things. They do all these things. And yet, on Judgment Day, they will be condemned to punishment in hell. Their enemy will have won. Death will reign over them, and hell and judgment will come upon them. And so the question is a right question that the Israelites ask, but they get the wrong answer. They think formalism, ritualism will save them. They ask this question, why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today? And they think the answer is rituals. But what's the right answer? Why does God bring defeat? Well, they got the answer partly right. Why does pain and suffering come? Why does death and hell approach? Well, it's because God is not present with us. If we are condemned to hell, it is because we do not know the saving presence of God. God distances himself from those who sin against him. When we sin, we break the relationship with our God, our creator, and his distancing himself from us brings triumph of enemies against us, and particularly death and hell. And so the Israelites were partly right. They understood that we need God's presence. We need God's presence. That only in God's presence is true salvation found. But they got it wrong in thinking that the way we get God's presence is by rituals, by a box that we can bring out. If we do that, we will be saved. But they got the answer wrong as to how we get God's presence. How do we have God's presence? How do we have his saving presence come into our lives? How do we have God living within us so that we are saved from all our enemies, including death and the judgment that is to come? Well, it's only by God's mercy. By God's mercy. It's not about what you say, not about what you do, not about the things that you have. It's all God's mercy that brings God's presence into your life. It is only by God's mercy that God's spirit will come and live in us and regenerate our hearts so that we are saved. And we understand this from the teachings of John uh, from Jesus in John's Gospel, John chapter 3. Turn with me there now, page 1051. How do you get into the kingdom of heaven? How do you get into the kingdom of God? How do you avoid going into eternal judgment in hell? How do you avoid that? Well, Jesus tells Nicodemus, a religious leader, in page 1051, page 1051, John chapter 3. How do you get God's presence into you so that he saves you? John chapter 3, verse 3. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How do you get into the kingdom of God? You need to be born again. But then Nicodemus says, How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked, Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Verse 5. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, 
but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How do you have God's presence in your life to save you? How do you have the new birth? How do you enter into the kingdom of heaven? It's by the Spirit. It's by the Spirit coming and working in your heart and changing your heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Now, how do you get the Spirit to come into your heart? How do you get him to be dwelling within you so that you can have eternal life? What can you do to force the Spirit into your life? Well, there's nothing you can do. What did it say in verse 8? The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Trying to force God is like trying to force the wind. Trying to catch the wind and move it in a different direction. You can't do it. Which means, as the Bible tells us again and again, that if you are to be saved by God, it is all by his mercy. You can't do anything. You can't force the Lord to save you, to bring his presence into your life. It has to be by his mercy. You can't buy a religious symbol that will bring God into your life. You can't construct an ark of God and bring God into your life. No, all you can do is beg God for mercy. Beg him for mercy. Beg that the sacrifice that Jesus made at the cross is the blood that will cleanse you from your unrighteousness. And beg that the Holy Spirit will come and dwell in your heart. Israel, back in 1 Samuel, was yearning for the presence of God to save them. They wanted God's presence and they wanted his saving presence. But that presence only comes from the Davidic king that was to come and was to be, and that kingdom that was to be set up in Samuel and would eventually lead to the Lord Jesus Christ, that king who would die on the cross as the king of the Jews in our place. And through that death, the Holy Spirit then comes where he chooses and changes hearts so that people are saved and can defeat all their enemies, including death and judgment. Are you trying to manipulate God? into bringing his presence into your life and save you? You can't do it. It is only by his mercy. All you can do is beg for his mercy. Beg for the sacrifice of Jesus to be applied to your account. Beg for the Holy Spirit to come to you. Cry out to God in your heart even now. Send your spirit to me now. I have got nothing to offer God. Send your spirit. Save me. Save me from all my enemies, including the death and judgment that is to come. And then once we're saved... As I know many of you in this room are, that the Holy Spirit has come and lived in you, then go about the religion that is instructed in the scriptures to do. Seemed like before I was paying out on church attendance and Bible reading and prayer, saying the Lord's Prayer. These are good things to do. They're good and helpful things. Helping the poor, that's pure religion, the Bible says. But we do those things not to force the hand of God, to save us. We do them because we have been saved. We don't live religious lives to avoid disaster. We live religious lives because we've avoided disaster in Jesus Christ. Sin, suffering, death have all been defeated. And so we go about our religious duties. We come to church because it's a joy to do so. We read our Bibles because it's a joy to do so. We say the Lord's Prayer because it's a joy to speak to our Father who has saved us. Not because we're trying to force him to do anything, but because he's already acted. He's acted in Jesus Christ. He's acted in his spirit coming and changing our hearts. So God has not left us in the dark as we face our enemies. 
as we cry out with the Israelites who so long ago asked that question, why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today? He has not left us in the dark. He has told us why he has brought defeat upon us, and then he has told us the solution to the problem, his presence wrought in our hearts by his spirit. The trouble is I fear that some of you are like the Israelites and you think that the outside matters more than the inside. You're like those whitewashed tombs that Jesus describes with the Pharisees. And it's so sad to see that. I saw a beautiful home recently that was for sale and it's just wonderful on the inside. It's got this gorgeous living room, polished floorboards. The kitchen has been just recently renovated. It's lovely. The, the lights are modern looking. It's just it's light and fresh all through the kitchen area. It's got a nice bathroom, new tiles, just gorgeous to look at. A pretty exterior, a small yard, which I'm kind of a fan of because it means that you don't have to mow as much. Uh, I don't want a big yard. Nice, small, but very well-kept yard. Looks wonderful. Fresh coats of paint everywhere. But I learned that the structure within that beautiful home is actually rotting away. That dampness is all through it, under that pretty exterior. Termites have been in there and had a nice time, but they've damaged the structure within there, the frame of that home. New weatherboards were simply nailed on top of the old damaged weatherboards. And so one day, that beautiful home will collapse because it's rotten at its core. What holds all those good things up is actually damaged. And one day, all that that home will be worth is the land value that that home sits on. Are you like that house? You're here on Sunday, you read your Bible, you pray, you do nice things. But underneath, the Spirit does not dwell in your heart. You're not saved by the Spirit's presence. The Spirit may be present as you go about these religious duties. See, that's the thing. God's presence seems to still be with that ark of God. We'll see next week what happens with the ark of God. And you may be going about your religious duties. You may be hearing the voice of God as you read the Bible. You may be amongst God's people where the Spirit really does dwell. But he doesn't dwell in your heart. The preacher, when he preaches, he may speak the very words of God. He may be used of God to proclaim God's message to you. But the Spirit does not dwell in your hearts. And he is not there to save you. And you may listen to others who cheer you on and say, yes, you're saved. Yes, God dwells with you. Yes, you're going to be okay. Yes, there's no way you're going to hell. But they're wrong. Last week, it was interesting, two of our primary politicians were having this exchange, it seemed like via the media, about who goes to hell. And they were challenging one another to particularly document in the media who goes to hell. And they were asking about particular groups within society. Who goes to hell? And it was interesting. Both of the politicians were saying, I don't think so, and these, these group of people go to hell. And the other one was saying, yes, I don't think they do either. Neither of them acknowledged, what does God think of who goes to hell? The way these two politicians were speaking in our land, it seemed like they had the keys to hell. They knew exactly who goes and who doesn't go. They don't have the keys to hell. God does. But people will cheer you on. You can always find people who will say you're okay. You may be rotted on the inside, but they will cheer you on. I fear that some of you in this church 
that are here today may look very good on the outside like this home that I saw, but you're rotten at the core because you have not had the Holy Spirit come and dwell within you to save. So don't ask the right question about death and hell and then get the answer partially right. Don't ask the right question about why are my enemies defeating me? Why do I face death? And then think, it's God's presence. Yes, that's true, that I need. But then you think, I can force God into my life. You can't. What you need to do is beg God. Don't bully God. Beg God. Whenever you try to force God's arm, you end up just breaking your own. You can't do it. Beg him. Don't bully him. Don't be a fool for even trying to manipulate God like you've manipulated others all your life. Beg for mercy and ask for the Spirit to come and live in you and save you by his presence. And so that beautiful exterior that you can have is a reflection of the beautiful interior, the even more beautiful interior, where the Spirit himself dwells within. Let's come to our God in prayer. Let's speak to him now. Heavenly Father, we praise you as a God who is mighty to save. But Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for all the times that we've thought we can force you to do what we want, to manipulate you, to save us from our enemies. Oh Lord, we thank you for sending your spirit to save many of us by your mercy. And we ask that you would continue to send your spirit by your mercy. We beg of you, we cannot force you to send your spirit into a single person's life here today, but we beg you, O oh God, and we know that you're a merciful God. And you do extend your mercy to those who come to you and ask in repentance and faith. And so, Lord, we ask that you would send your spirit today and save more from the enemies, particularly of death and hell. And, Lord, we pray that you would use us to proclaim your truth to others, that we're not saved by our works, but we're saved by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross. And so, Lord, we pray that many others would be saved as you use us to proclaim these truths. And we pray this all in your Son's precious name. Amen.